Do you love live music? This episode is for you. After taking in a number of shows after a bit of a lull, I was energized, engaged, and excited. It got me thinking about telling the story of not only those concert experiences, but also about the broader subject of live music. So let's talk, shall we? I'll start, and then hopefully you can respond, and we can compare notes in a future episode. Welcome to Southern Songs and Stories. I'm your host, Joe Kendrick, and this is our episode on the live music experience. Southern Songs and Stories has been running for over five years as a podcast and existed as a video documentary series years before that. You probably know that the main mode for both versions of the show remains a series of in-depth interviews with music artists and media professionals, along with commentary from yours truly and music to round it all out. But every once in a while, we branch out with different approaches. There are episodes on the dark history of the Shelton Laurel Massacre, episodes giving an overview of Southern music and culture going back to their inception, and episodes which take on themes like artists' side hustles and imagining what would make the ways of the world better for music. This episode is also a tangent, not focusing on one artist or group, but touching on the common theme of live music so often featured here. But here we take that tangent further by making the episode into a music diary of sorts, with no artist interviews at all. It is also the first Southern Songs and Stories to be offered as an NFT, or non-fungible token. This episode is available online like every other in our series, but there are also a smaller number of unique versions of it available on the website uncut.fm, the company which states that their mission is to build a new podcasting economy where hosts can connect directly with their fans and distribute their work and receive payments without intermediaries. It is a bit like taking the crowdfunding model up a notch because everyone who buys the NFT version of this podcast owns something that they can sell, trade, or give away. It is no longer a one-way street. It is not a subscription that will end. It is yours even if I stop producing Southern Songs and Stories and take down my site. You could think of it as kind of a digital trading card or a way to bookmark a chapter in this series. The benefits? Imagine this first edition, limited run of digital trading cards becoming more valuable in time. You could sell yours for a profit if you like, and that benefits me too, because in addition to the first sale, there is a small return to every NFT's creator on each subsequent transaction. And there are more benefits, like being a part of the unique community of contributors who will have access to a gated space on Uncut, where we can talk about this episode or anything else we want to share. We might even come up with a new and better NFT for the next round. Everything is spelled out in the Southern Songs and Stories listing online at uncut.fm. This episode is divided into three chapters, with each chapter throwing out a question to guide the narrative, and also literally ask you that question. First up, what was your first live music experience? This is such a Rorschach test of a question, such a good icebreaker anytime you're around even the most casual of music fans. I would love to hear about it, and feel free to tag Southern Songs and Stories on social media with your memories, or reply to the posts that we make about this, or on the companion article to this podcast on southernsongsandstories.com, or even email at southernsongsandstories at gmail.com. There are more questions about live music coming up in the episode that you are encouraged to comment on as well, and I sincerely hope that we can start an ongoing conversation about this. 
So the first concert you ever saw? The answer at the top of the food chain would be from someone like Rodney Crowell, who in his autobiography, Chinaberry Sidewalks, details how as a toddler, his father took him to see Hank Williams play and put him on his shoulders so he could take it all in. It doesn't get much better than being able to say, I was there for one of the last shows from one of the greatest artists to ever walk the earth. Even better for the father and son dynamic in a scene where you realize the spark was lit and the path was set. My very first concert was also at a young age, probably around 9 or 10 years old, and like Rodney, with my dad. He took me and my sister, who would have been about 5, to Carowinds, the amusement park near Charlotte, and while there, we took in a show from Donnie and Marie Osmond. I remember it being a concrete amphitheater. Donnie and Marie looked like they were fresh out of a toy box. The show did not click with me, probably with all of us, and since it was not a scenario like Rodney Crowell's, with my dad checking off a bucket list experience for himself and his kids, so we did not stay for the whole set. Not exactly the apex of first concert experiences, but memorable enough at least. Not a revelation, more like a curious discovery that would be set aside for later. I'm pretty sure that the next concert I saw was in high school. There may have been something in between that time and Donnie and Marie, but I do not recall. And if I forgot, that would not surprise me. I tend to forget many shows over time. Do you? Maybe you save all your ticket stubs as memorabilia, at least partly because your memory fades too. But I digress. We'll get back to that facet of how we approach the live music experience in a bit. Now, that high school show was some cover band whose name I do not remember, but their performance stays with me all these years later. Do public schools do this anymore? I sure hope so. Anyhow, back in the day at West Stanley High School, we retreated to this rock band playing the hits of the day. I don't remember any of the songs even, but I cannot forget the feeling it gave me. It was something like eating ice cream for the first time, or, or maybe doing that first cannonball into a pool. I knew immediately that from then on, I was going to be doing this a lot. The first show I saw of my choosing was Flock of Seagulls, who played a club in Charlotte. I was too young to drive, so my mom took me there and picked me up after the show. That was really cool of my mom. And the show wasn't bad either, just not as good as the hair. It was the 80s, you know. What was your latest concert experience? I bet you have been out to a show or two since that awful year or two that no one could do much except watch live streams of shows. Do you remember when we were all locked down and everyone kept talking about how, if we did everything right, soon we could get back to the way everything was in the before time? When did you realize that not only was the pandemic not going away anytime soon, but also that getting back to the way things were was never going to happen? Bonus question. Did you foresee some of the fundamental shifts that have taken place because of the shutdown and fallout from the pandemic? I will admit that I was overly pessimistic about where we would stand now while the shutdown was still going on. I thought it would wipe out way more venues and force many more artists into different jobs than actually happened. Thankfully, many artists made lemonade out of all those lemons and got by with playing live stream shows from their homes or even excelled at the new model. Take North Carolina's Jonathan Bird, for example. At the close of 2020, he had his best year ever with concert revenue. He and others who adapted to the online-only environment increased their fan base many times over by keeping a regular schedule of stream shows and getting good at online tip jars, crowdfunding, and other new revenue sources. 
Some venues went away, but many more than I first expected to stayed afloat with money from the CARES Act and a variety of other grants. All that was something of a silver lining, but there was still the cloud, and that cloud still hangs over us to one degree or another. A lot of people got used to staying home for one thing. Overall attendance is still down and may stay depressed for who knows how long. But again, I digress. Back to the original question. What was your latest concert experience? One of the most recent shows I saw was Bonnie Vare with Bonnie Light Horseman. This show was notable in many ways, starting with the way I went about taking it in. Now, everyone experiences concerts differently, with the usual way involving being in the audience and focusing, more or less, on the performance. This was the way I took in every show until I started representing WNCW at concerts and festivals by emceeing and by writing and producing podcasts about them. This fundamental shift took me from being in attendance to being a part of the production, and it was a rush to be so plugged in. Backstage, on stage, snapping photos, chatting up artists and fellow music professionals, this became the dominant mode for seeing live music. With this came a decline in seeing all the shows themselves. The new mode of posting photos to social media immediately, of futzing with and brooding over audio devices, of happy reunions with fellow travelers, of an overarching approach treating events as a palette of paint for my own works rather than as paintings to enjoy at face value. This MO became a kind of double-edged sword. The fruits of access blighted the way I first took in all of this musical bounty making it impractical and increasingly less possible, because of the three or four other things going on, to fixate on a performance for very long. On the other hand, I got to talk with artists, create something unique out of the experience, and feel like I was living up to my potential. I'm not going to complain. On Sunday, June 26, 2022, though, I wound the clock back a bit at a new venue called Rabbit Rabbit in Asheville, North Carolina, Instead of interviewing artists backstage in a green room or in a motor coach, I stood in the audience the whole time. The fact that I am talking about the show in this episode makes it obvious that I did not entirely abandon my usual mode, but it is a compromise that was easy enough to make. Downtown Asheville, North Carolina would be almost unrecognizable to someone who last saw it 20 years ago. New hotels. Seriously, there are so many hotels. New businesses, new venues, Add to that list Rabbit Rabbit, a 4,000 capacity outdoor venue in the South Slope District. The show was sold out, but it never felt so crowded that moving further up front would have required elbowing through people. The stage was clearly visible from where I stood, back near the audio engineer's tent. I had the opportunity to write about Bonnie Light Horseman for NPR recently, reviewing their new song California for their now playing page. You can find that linked under the NPR Music Umbrella at npr.org. The trio is a supergroup composed of Anais Mitchell, who is well-known for the Broadway adaptation of her fourth album, Town, which won eight Tony Awards in 2019, including the Tony Award for Best Musical and the Tony Award for Best Original Score. The Broadway cast album of the show took home the Grammy Award for Best Musical Theater Album in 2020, and she also wrote a book about it called Working on a Song, The Lyrics of Town." Eric D. Johnson is the lead singer. You may know him from Fruit Bats or from his previous stint in The Shins. He has also scored films, most notably Our Idiot Brother, 
and Smashed, where he collaborated with Andy Kabik of the band Vetiver. And speaking of films, he has also appeared in films and has worked as a voice actor. I've been a fan of his for years and had the pleasure of interviewing Eric when he played solo in a live session at WNCW a couple of years ago. Rounding out the trio is musical chameleon Josh Kaufman, a multi-instrumentalist, songwriter, producer, composer, arranger, and engineer whose list of credits is as long as your arm, including collaborations with Bob Weir, Josh Ritter, and Taylor Swift. They were joined on bass by Asheville's own Michael Libramento, who plays in the band's Coconut Cake and Floating Action, and who has many other credits like Flock of Dimes and Tedeschi Trucks Band. Bonnie Light Horseman played from their self-titled debut album, including my favorite from that collection, their song Jane Jane. They added at least one more recent tune into their set, the song Green Rocky Road, from their 2020 single Green Slash Green. I did not hear them play California from their upcoming album Rolling Golden Holy, which features all three taking turns on their first collective instrument purchase, the dulcimer. And they definitely did not play a dulcimer that night. Speaking of dulcimer, this did not make it into the song review on NPR, but it makes me laugh every time I see it. In our correspondence about copy edits for that review, one of their editors sent me an update titled, Now playing the latest from this Voltron of Americana. Now with more dulcimer. This is not music by Bonnie Light Horseman or Bonnie Vare. It's Eddie's Twister by Eddie Lang, which I found on Open Music Archive. Why would I be playing you something that is not from the artist or band at hand here? It is pretty simple. Because I'm offering NFT versions of this episode, I'm not using copyrighted material in it, and instead I'm sourcing public domain instrumentals from Open Music Archive and from the site freepd.com. You heard a couple of songs from freepd.com earlier in the episode. Going forward, I will ask my guests if they want to split the proceeds of an NFT version of their episodes, so stay tuned, as they say, for news on that. In between sets, there was time for guilt-free conversation, and luckily enough, I caught up with Jeff Whitworth, Anya Hinkle, and briefly, David Wilcox. While it is never unusual to see Jeff at any given show, he books acts for the Bijou Theater and the Grey Eagle, I was not expecting to see singer-songwriters like Anya and David there, which was a pleasant surprise. It was also a testament to the widespread appeal of Bonnie Vare. Now, I've seen plenty of shows where I was only somewhat familiar with the band's catalog, and Bonnie Vare falls into that category. This was a show that was always going to present some unforeseen turns. Justin Vernon's debut for Emma Forever Ago remains my go-to album, a largely acoustic collection which seemed to stand in contrast to his later works. Seeing him in a six-piece band where five members had a keyboard I mean, it was like an echo of how many hotels were within a few blocks, you know. That reinforced the preconception. One of the synths was for one of the pair of drummers on hand, which also told me that we weren't in Kansas anymore. However, as the show progressed, I realized that the old saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same, was somewhat in play here. Even though Vernon has hit the stratosphere with collaborations with Jay-Z, Nas, Taylor Swift and Kanye, and has produced artists ranging from Brittany Howard to Bruce Hornsby, his work in Bonnie Vare does maintain a large degree of continuity. 
Even though his band has over 11 million monthly listeners on Spotify, you can't say that Justin Vernon has lost touch with the version of himself that spent several months in the fall and winter of 2006 sequestered in a hunting cabin in northwestern Wisconsin, writing that first watershed record. The seeds of his later warped R&B tracks are easy to dig up in the warbling, softly blurred auto-tune of songs like The Wolves, Act 1 and 2, from For Emma, Forever Ago, and that night's full-on rock treatment of his song Salem, where Josh Kaufman joined in on a much more intense version than the one from the album, was hinted at in the quiet fervor of a song like the proxy title track For Emma, where Vernon's sustained falsetto wail couples with electric guitar, trumpet, and trombone. Overall, it was a very good show, and Bon Iver closed their set by inviting Anais Mitchell, Josh Kaufman, and Eric D. Johnson on stage to sing a cover of Bob Dylan's With God on Our Side. Good times. What story do you have to tell about your latest concert experience? I would love to hear it. Here we are at the last question of the episode, and I bet you can guess what it is. What was your favorite live music experience? This one could be really tough for many of us. How many shows have you seen? Personally, I have no idea. And circling back to an earlier point, there are a ton of shows that I have forgotten or shows that I conflate. I will look at my music collection and say, didn't I see them at the Cat's Cradle back in the day? Or was it this other band? I remember going on a road trip from Chapel Hill to DC in my college days and staying with some friends at Georgetown University. We went to the 930 Club. I can't recall who we saw, but it could have been Fugazi. I can tell you that there was a popular song by My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult playing on the PA before the show started. Now I keep some ticket stubs and in later years I started a lanyard collection which keeps growing, but I am not a completist. I do not have a display case or cigar boxes full of every concert stub going back to that night seeing Flock of Seagulls. I think a large part of the reason why is that I never approached live music, or recorded music for that matter, as something to keep as it was something to experience. Live music was more of a face value type of experience. It was all about the moment rather than remembrance. Maybe you have vivid memories of all or most of the shows you have seen. I tip my hat to you. The question may be even harder for you though, because the more you remember about all those great shows, the more hairs you have to split in order to answer. Let us know what your answer or answers are, because again, my goal here is to start a conversation with you about this experience, which makes us feel more free, more happy, and more alive than just about anything. can think of three shows off the top of my head that are all-time favorites. Isotope 217 at Vincent's Ear in Asheville, North Carolina on October 5th, 1999. I interviewed the band beforehand with a handheld microcassette recorder. Boy, do I wish I still had that tape and was on a high after talking with them. I walked out to the courtyard adjacent to the club and saw my friend and fellow overnight DJ Pete Aldrich hanging out with a few people. So I went over to chat. Pete went to Appalachian State University in nearby Boone, where he played in a punk band called Super Spies. One of the people he was hanging out with that night was their former bass player, Amy. We were introduced, and while we didn't make all that much conversation as far as I recall, 
we did exchange glances a few times during the show, which was fantastic. Both the show part and the making eyes at each other part. Long story short, Amy and I were married a little more than a year later. Another really neat thing about the show is that it is on YouTube. And I'll share the link to that in the show notes. Another favorite is the War and Treaty at the Albino Skunk Music Festival on Friday, April 12, 2019. I interviewed husband and wife band leaders Michael and Tanya Trotter on site before their set. And you can dive into a whole Southern Songs and Stories episode on them. It's titled The War and Treaty, Blowing the Roof Off and Loving Without Limits. My very good friend Jeff Williams was with me for his first time at the festival, which is one of my must-see events in the spring and fall. And it was the first time either of us saw the War and Treaty play. Their set was just phenomenal, a soulful explosion of roots music that grabbed hold of the audience and held us all in its sway the whole show. Michael and Tanya are a force of nature on stage and exude an energy and love for each other, for their band, and for the crowd that is palpable. It was as if their show was shining a light on places inside of us that we never expected. Their performance seemed to unlock something inside a lot of the people seeing it. They played with such passion and joy that it spilled out all over everyone within earshot, rushing over them with a wave of emotion that is impossible to forget. When the War and Treaty played their song Reach Out and dedicated it to someone in the audience who was close to someone dying from cancer, I think most people there were getting choked up at that point. I'd already been crying by then, I think. People afterwards said that they were crying, simply rocked to the core, but in the best way. In the Southern Songs and Stories episode on Michael and Tanya, I mentioned that their backstory was so incredible that it read something like straight out of a movie. Sure enough, they will be in a movie, the upcoming biopic simply titled The War and Treaty. And they will headline the Albino Skunk Music Festival once again in October of 2022. Have you ever been to Bonnaroo? If you've been there, you know. And even if you have not, you probably know that Bonnaroo is big. Even with roughly half the attendance of what it saw in pre-COVID times, this year the festival had a crowd estimated at upwards of 40,000. Going to Manchester, Tennessee to the 700-acre facility where the bill has over 150 musicians performing is intimidating and exciting on the scale of New York City. It is a lot, but once you adjust to its energy level, you can get in the flow of things. With all of those artists and bands playing on maybe a dozen different stages over four days, not to mention all the other things you can do like yoga or the silent disco, or even running a 5K, and the music going on all through the night, there is zero chance that you can take it all in. That can lead to some hard choices when you realize that, say, there are three shows overlapping that you would really, really like to see. Take my trip to Bonnaroo way back in 2013, for example. When faced with the choice of catching sets from Calexico, Jason Isbell, or Bombino, who would you choose? Tough one, right? I went with Bombino and was rewarded with a fantastic hour of music from the Nigerian artist and his band, but I'm sure that Isbell or Calexico would have been massive too. Speaking of massive, that brings me to the third of my three all-time favorite shows. Paul McCartney on the main stage at Bonnaroo, June 14th, 2013. The next day, this is what I posted about the show. Still feeling euphoric after the concert of a lifetime, there is no hyperbole in that statement, 
Last night, we were treated to nearly three hours of Paul McCartney on the main stage. The show started with a scrolling montage of photos and videos of Paul, the Beatles, Wings, and a host of music artists and icons from his childhood to today, paired with abstract art, while a DJ mixed and mashed Beatles and Wings songs for the crowd of 80,000. This was most everyone at Bonnaroo, and regardless of how far away they were, they made a great choice to attend this magnificent performance. I went on to recount how lucky I was to have bumped up against Sean O'Connell in the media compound. Sean is a lifer in music promotions and is now with AEG Presents. Being at the right place at the right time, I got to go all the way down to the fenced-off area right in front of the stage. It really felt like winning the lottery, both for being so close and for the show itself. It was just as good as it gets. When the show ended, the group I was with all hugged each other. We were beaming positively on air. So there you have it, a good bit of my experience with live music, although there is so, so much more to talk about. And that is where you come in. Please join in the conversation on our social media, where you can find Southern Songs and Stories on Twitter, at South Scenes, on Instagram, at South Stories, and on our self-titled page on Facebook. You can also email southernsongsandstories at gmail.com. What are your live music experiences? What else would you like for us to focus on in another live music-themed episode? Everyone who buys one of the limited edition NFT versions of this episode on the website uncut.fm will have access to a gated space with everyone who supported us in this way, where we can start even more conversations about the music we love. Southern Songs and Stories is a part of the podcast lineup of Osiris Media, with all of the Osiris shows available at osirispod.com. You can also hear new episodes of this podcast on Bluegrass Planet Radio at bluegrassplanetradio.com. Thanks to Carlos Diaz and the team at Uncut FM for making it possible to make the NFT version of this episode available. Uncut.fm has a host of other podcast NFTs to offer on their website as well. I'm your host and producer, Joe Kendrick, and this is Southern Songs and Stories, the music of the South and the artists who make it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.